we're in the 25th chapter of Ezekiel, and I tried to get, I tried to do something last week uh, by teaching narratively. There, it is, I'm a line upon line, precept upon precept person, so it's really hard for me to do that. So uh, the, tonight I'm going to try to do line upon line, but uh, I might skip over some things, but I will try to teach the important parts of each of these chapters that we're going into tonight. But I challenge you to read them for yourselves. The Holy Spirit will take you as deep as you choose to go in understanding. Even though the majority of these scriptures give us history, portions of it are very relevant for us today and into our future. And I have probably said this a million times, but I will say it once more. The Lord showed me one time, he said, daughter, behind every scripture there is a door. And if you wait upon me, I will open that door, and that scripture will take you to the throne. There is such richness in the word of God, every word of God. And so I just, I pray that hunger will increase. And as you go, and the word, when, when it gets in you, it's going gonna, it's gonna to affect change in you. Things are going to change. So we're in chapter 25, it's going to deal with God's judgment on four nations, Ammon, Moab, Edom, Philistia. And before we get into the text, I want to give you a little history. And I appreciated what when Anthony said, God loves his sheep. God is love. He is love. And so the first two judgments given are for Ammon and Moab, and they were brothers born out of the illicit relations that Lot had with his two daughters. And if you remember that story, they thought that they, that they would have no more family, and so they got their father intoxicated, and they had relations with him. It's hard for me to imagine being that intoxicated, but that's okay. Uh, the Lord just tells me, glean, don't judge, glean. <laughs> so Abraham was Lot's uncle, and therefore these two brothers were distant relatives of the Israelites. And he became father of the Ammonites. And this I want you to know, because uh, Anthony mentioned it too, that love, God loving the sheep, God is love. And God loved, and he honored, and he made provision for Ammon. This son, out of this illicit relations, he made provision for him. In Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 19, the word says, And when you come near, he's talking to the children of Israel, he says, And when you come near to the people of Ammon, do not harass them or meddle with them, for I will not give you any of the land and the people of the uh, land of the people of Ammon as a possess, possession because I have given it to the descendants of Lot as a possession. Now, let me tell you about the nature of those Ammonites that God so loved, and he gave him a portion. He gave him a, a, a portion of the land. It says the Ammonites were not good people. They were Bedouin. They, were, uh, they loved the open desert, and they were fierce. They were plundering. They were cruel. They were brutish murderers. 
they worshipped Molech, which they offered, you know, they did the infant sacrifice and all that kind of thing. They, and they, when the children of Israel were walking through to go toward the Canaan land, they refused them bread, and they refused them water. And so when they were going to the promised land, and they ripped open women with child, and they threatened to thrust out the right eye of all those in Jabesh Gilead at one time. And they joined Moab in securing Balaam to curse Israel. So they were proud, and they boasted arrogant threats. But God loved. Then we go to Moab, the other brother. And he becomes the father of the Moabites. And the word tells us again, God loved, honored, and made provision for them. In Deuteronomy 2.9, it says, Then the Lord said to me, do not harass Moab, nor contend with them in a battle, for I will not give you any of their land as a possession, because I have given Ar to the descendants of Lot as a possession. They were a little bit more civilized than the Ammonites, and they had large cities. The, Moab, the Moabite cities were large. They were rich. They had plentiful fields and vineyards and summer fruit and sheep and cattle. They knew peace and prosperity. The people were fat and self-satisfied, but they had no respect for God. They denied Israel permission to pass through their land on their way to Canaan. And Moab's king, Balak, tried, tried to hire, he hired Balaam to curse them, remember that. And when that failed, that plan failed, they, they allied themselves with the Midianites to destroy Israel by the seduction of harlots. They worshipped Shemash and Baal by sacrificing infants, and they regarded Judah as just one of the other nations, even though they were related. And then we go down to Edom. The Edomites were descendants of Esau. The word Edom means red, and you probably know that. And You remember the conflict between Esau and Jacob. There was a natural enmity between Esau's descendants the Edomites, and Jacob's descendants, the Israelites. So they were even more closely related to Judah than were the Ammonites and the Moabites. So we'll get our, our ites all straight. But, but the relationship, you would have think that if it's, even if it's a distant relative, that you would have a little bit more respect and honor for them. This one, even, even Edom, God loved and honored him made provision for them in Deuteronomy 2, 4 through 5, and says, and command the people, saying, you are about to pass through the territory of your brethren, the descendants of Esau, who lived in Seir, and they will be afraid of you. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully. Do not meddle with them, for I will not give you any of their land, no, not so much as one footstep, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. God is so loving and so faithful. But the Edomites were warring, idolatrous, proud, cruel, vengeful. Edom consistently took sides with the enemies of Israelites and often helped them. Their hatred of Israel was shown by their refusal to allow their passage through their country on the way up from Egypt. The Israelites literally went to king, the, the king of Sion, and they actually 
they had been circling all these people and just asking. They said, well, hey, we won't take any of your, the, the, the grapes from your vineyards. We won't drink your water. Just let us pass through. And they refused them. And so in the first 24 chapters, we saw through God's eyes the abominations of Judah. We saw the abominations of those Israelites. And God is a just God, and God is a merciful God. And you know if he loves you, he will chasten you. And he sent many prophets to warn them to repent. But like I said last week, they had a cup. And we have a cup. We have a cup. And when you sin, that cup is filled up. It begins to fill up. And I don't know why that I'm emphasizing the cup. But I want you to see something here. Their cup was full. God had, for a long time, been merciful to them and warned them. But now it was the time. The cup was full. The abominations had to be judged by God. So he chose Babylon as his sword. And we talked about the flashing sword last week. Nebuchadnezzar was God's servant to execute the judgment. Judah and the cities of Jerusalem are getting the judgment that is due them. But God has looked around, and he sees that their distant relatives, Ammon, Ammon, Moab, and Edom, as well as the other nations, all of which deserve judgment, are gloating and saying, Aha. We will see that when God is dealing with his people in correction, it is very unwise to rejoice about it. And it is, it is hard not to. When someone has been hateful to you and they kind of get theirs, you want to kind of like gloat a little bit? No. No. God chastens those that he loves. And you'll always find out that the when it's like the preacher's kid always gets caught when they do something wrong. They don't get away with anything. It, they always get caught. And uh, if you've had a praying mother or a praying father, uh, you are always getting caught. God, he, he's going to look at you. He's going to catch you. He's not going to let it go on. But when you're corrected, and if you've ever corrected your child, and you see someone mocking that correction or mocking that child or adding to it or just excited that you're doing that, you would turn on them. And that's the way our Father God is. So we know that it was wrong, and this is, this is really the reason, the main reason why God is going to come after them. And so we go into 20, chapter 25, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against the Ammonites and prophesy against them. And say to the Ammonites, Hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God, Because you said, Aha, against my sanctuary when it was profaned, and against the land of Israel when it was desolate, and against the house of Judah when they went into captivity, Indeed, therefore, I will deliver you as a possession to the men of the east, and they shall set their encampments among you and make their dwelling among you. 
They shall eat your fruit, and they shall drink your milk, and I will make Rabbah a stable. That was their main capital city. I will make it a stable for camels and Ammon, a resting place for flocks. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. For thus says the Lord God, because you clapped your hands and you stamped your feet and you rejoiced in heart with all your disdain for the land of Israel. Indeed, therefore, I will stretch out my hand against you and give you as plunder to the nations. I will cut you off from the peoples and I will cause you to perish from the countries. I will destroy you and you shall know that I am the Lord. So God's a little bit upset with them. And I think of the people right now in our day and age. Do you know that this is the same Israel? <laughs> the same Israel that God, that we're dealing with today. And I think of people that refuse to take a side. That will stand in any kind of dilemma they have. And point the finger at them. God is the same dad, <laughs> the same person, the same nation, the same people he's looking at today. And we're getting ready to wind this whole thing up. It's going to happen. We're getting very close. Judgment had come. The temple was destroyed. Jerusalem had been leveled. The Ammonites applauded the enemy that destroyed Israel. Ammon rejoiced over the destruction of the temple, mockingly say, aha, at the demolition and the exiles of the people of Judah. Their rejoicing was not taken lightly by God. God's judgment would fit Ammon's sin. God would send them to the people of the east, the nomadic, nomadic desert tribesmen as a possession. There were no more nation. Their capital city, Rabbah, would be destroyed. It would no longer be a great city. It would become pasture for camels and flocks of sheep and goats. Because of their mocking attitude toward Israel, Ammon would be plundered by other nations and destroyed, cut off. God would end their existence as a separate nation and destroy them as a people. Five years after Jerusalem fell, about 581 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar brought Ammon and Moab into subjection. Ammon no longer existed as a nation after Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it and the Bedouins from the east plundered it. So they ended up with nothing. They're no, they're no longer a nation. And, and that's kind of a scary when you think about, uh, you know, God hasn't changed. And I, and I feel this, too, that when we overlook the whole counsel of God, which, is, which includes the, the New Testament and the Old Testament, God wants you to know his nature. God wants us to see sin the way he sees it. And there's a time when all the things that we have allowed, all that scum, we still have the cup. We're still filling it up. But praise God, Jesus drank that cup for us. Right down to the dregs of that cup. He took it all. But when you see how God feels about it, when you see how that just because they, well, it wasn't just because, but because they could stand there and, and stamp their feet and clap and rejoice because God's people were being punished. And you see God's heart. 
And when you see in our nations today, the people that would point their finger in Iran, <laughs> they've got to go. Israel has got to go. They've been, they need to be washed. They need to be wiped off the face of the earth. It's the same God that looked down and saw this, that is looking down upon that nation and is looking down upon our nation when we refuse to side with Israel. And we let their prime minister stay in the kitchen like a scullery maid and treated without honor. I'm sorry, there's a little political in me. Excuse it. (laughs) The modern-day city of Amman is in Jordan, and it is located on top of the ancient city of Rabbah. 25 miles east of the Dead Sea. Jeremiah prophesied that God would restore the fortunes of the Ammonites in in Jeremiah 49.6. This occurred briefly after the exile. But you remember, this is the the nature of these people. (laughs) Tobiah, he was an Ammonite, and he was a Persian governor during the post-exilic period. And Nehemiah is over there trying to Rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and Tobiah is discouraging. And so they're having to fight with one arm uh, and build with the other. And I, I, I almost feel like that when uh, the, the discouragement that sometimes is on the house of the Lord, it's because we got a Tobiah, the spirit that discourages God's people. And we find ourselves fighting a building, fighting a building, fighting a building. <laughs> but praise God, God's got the victory. We've got the victory. Yes. Now he goes to the proclamation against Moab. This is the other brother. Thus says the Lord God, because Moab and Seir say, Look, the house of Judah is like all the nations. Therefore, behold, I will clear the territory of Moab of cities. Of the cities on its frontier, the glory of the country, Beth, Jeshemoth, Baal, Mion, and Kirjathaim. To the men of the east, I will give it as a possession together with the Ammonites. So he's given those brothers away, that the Ammonites may not be remembered among the nations. And I will execute judgments upon Moab, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Ezekiel prophesied that God would expose the flank or the border of Moab to invading forces. Moab would be unable to protect its border, and soon the whole country would be at risk. As with the Ammonites, the Moabites would be overtaken by the nomadic desert tribesmen, and they would cease to exist in the family of nations. And as far as a a Semitic is concerned, to not be remembered is the most horrible thing. And so he said that they would just not exist. They're not going to be exist in the family of nations. This nation also passed out of existence during the exile. Yet again, God promises to restore the fortunes of Moab in the distant future. And there again, it happened in a limited way after the exile. But we're going to deal more with that when we get um, on over into into the book of Ezekiel. But the proclamation then comes against Edom. Thus says the Lord, this is verse 12, Thus says the Lord God, because of what Edom did 
against the house of Judah by taking vengeance and has greatly offended by avenging itself on them. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will also stretch out my hand against Edom. I will cut off man and beast from it and make it desolate from Teman. Dedan shall fall by the sword. I will lay my vengeance on Edom by the hand of my people Israel, that they may do in Edom according to my anger and according to my fury, and they shall know my vengeance, says the Lord God. So Edom saw in Judah's conflict with Babylon an opportunity to oppose her rival. If her foe was destroyed, then Edom would achieve a place of power at the southern end of the Dead Sea. Teman was a town in central Edom, not far from Selah, later known as Petra. Dedan was southeast of Edom in northern Arabia. Jeremiah revealed that this punishment would come through Nebuchadnezzar in Jeremiah 49.7.8. Edom was conquered by the Nabataeans during the intertestamental period, and the remnant of Edomites, also called the Idumeans, moved west toward the Negev, which is the desert. And later, they were forced to become Jewish converts. But I want you to, to there, there's a famous Idumean uh, uh, that you might know, and that's King Herod in the New Testament. So then we come to the proclamation against Philistia. The Philistines were a seafaring people who came to the coast of Israel from the area around the Aegean Sea, and they formed a confederation of five city-states. You remember these were the giants were Gath, Gaza, Ekron, Ashdod, Ascalon. A strong Jewish state was a threat to their control over the coastal area. So they opposed Israel even before the Monarchy, even before, uh, practically from the beginning, they were always op- in opposition to uh, Israel. Thus says the Lord God in verse 15, because the Philistines dealt vengefully and took vengeance with a spiteful heart to destroy because of the old hatred. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will stretch out my hand against the Philistines, and I will cut off the Cherethites and destroy the remnant of the seacoast. I will execute great vengeance on them with furious rebukes, and they shall know that I am the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon them. The Philistines acted with vengeance and have committed great vengeance with a spiteful heart to destroy with hatred forever. The Philistines had been Israel's enemy from the time of the conquest. Israel had failed to take all the promised land because she disobeyed God and because of the Philistines' military superiority on the coastal plain. Then the Philistines moved into the hill country in an attempt to control all the territory of Israel. God promises to cut off their best fighting forces and then destroy the remnant of the seacoast, which was their homeland. And the Cherethites were, they, the Cherethite means cutter, but they were swordsmen. And some of them were a fierce fighting force, and they had once been employed by David, as his, or some of them had been employed by David as his personal bodyguard bodyguards. God said that he would take vengeance on them for their treatment of his chosen people. There is no record of the Philistines' existence after the second century BC, though the names of their cities remained. 
And then verse 15 tells us that the Philistines were motivated by the old hatred and how little has changed in the Middle East. Yep, the old hatred. So then we go to Ezekiel 26. And this, I, I love uh, this chapter. I love the fulfillment of prophecy that we see here. It's the destruction of Tyre. Tyre was the capital of the great Phoenician nation, which is modern-day Lebanon. It was famous for its seagoing traders. It was the largest and it was the most powerful city of Phoenicia. It was well fortified. It had a great wall protecting the city from land attacks. And their world-renowned fleet protected them from attacks by the sea. They were known for their shipbuilding. In Ezekiel's time, Phoenician colonies were located in places now known as Cyprus, Rhodes, Malta, Spain, Sicily, Sardinia, and others. It was really the capital of a fairly broadly based commercial world empire. And it's comparable to Babylon. Tyre was the picture of unrestrained commercialism. They were the vulture-like scavengers on the fringes of every battlefield, waiting to make a deal to buy prisoners of war and to sell them at a profit. On one occasion, they had even sold the Israelites to Edom, and that you can find in Amos 1.9. Tyre was primarily a merchandiser, a tradesman, but another source of her wealth was the manufacture of a raw, Purple, rare purple dye made from the uh, murex shell, which came from a tiny shellfish abundant in that area. Both Tyre and Jerusalem had vied for the lucrative trade routes between Egypt and the rest of the Middle East. Tyre dominated the sea route, but Jerusalem controlled the caravan route. And being the good Jews that they were, they got their little tax for that. Tyre responded to Jerusalem's fall like a greedy merchant gloating over a rival's catastrophe. Without Jerusalem being able to secure the overland caravan routes, more products would be shipped by sea. In this chapter, Ezekiel prophesies some things to come for Tyre. First, he's going to prophesy that King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon is going to destroy the mainland city of Tyre. He's prophesied that many nations would rise up against Tyre, and these nations would come like waves of the sea one after another. He prophesied that Tyre will be made like a flat rock, that fishermen will dry their nets there, that the rubble of the city would be cast into the sea, and that Tyre would never be rebuilt. Verse 1, and it came to pass in the 11th year on the first day of the month that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, because Tyre has said against Jerusalem, Aha, she is broken, who was the gateway of the people. Now she is turned over to me. I shall be filled. She is laid waste. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Tyre. And will cause many nations to come up against you as the sea causes its waves to come up. 
and they shall destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers. I will also scrape her dust from her and make her like the top of a rock. It shall be a place for spreading nets in the midst of the sea, for I have spoken, says the Lord God. It shall become plunder for nations. Also her daughter villages, which are in the field, shall be slain by the sword. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will bring against Tyre from the north Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, king of kings, with horses, with chariots, with horsemen, and an army with many people. He will slay with the sword your daughter villages in the fields. He will heap up a siege mound against you, build a wall against you, and raise a defense against you. He will direct his battering rams against your walls, and with his axes he will break down your towers. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. Because of the abundance of his horses, their dust will cover you. Your walls will shake at the noise of the horsemen, the wagons, and the chariots when he enters your gates. As men enter a city that has been breached, with the hooves of the horses, he will trample all your streets. He will slay your people by the sword, and your strong pillars will fall to the ground. Then it changes from, from he, Nebuchadnezzar, to they. They will plunder your riches and pillage your merchandise. They will break down your walls and destroy your pleasant houses. They will lay your stone, your timber, and your soil in the midst of the water. I will put an end to the sound of your songs, and the sound of your harps shall be heard no more. I will make you like the top of a rock. You shall be a place for spreading nets, and you shall never be rebuilt. For I, the Lord, have spoken says the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to Tyre, Will the coastlands not shake at the sound of your fall? When the wounded cry, when slaughter is made in the midst of you, then all the princes of the sea will come down from their thrones, lay aside their robes and take off their embroidered garments. They will clothe themselves with trembling and they will sit on the ground tremble every moment and be astonished at you. And they will take up a lamentation for you and say to you, have you how you have perished, O one inhabited by seafaring men, O renowned city, who was strong at sea, she and her inhabitants, who caused their terror to be on all her inhabitants? Now the coastlands tremble on the day of your fall. Yes, the coastlands by the sea are troubled at your departure. For thus says the Lord God, when I make you a desolate city, like the cities that are not inhabited, when I bring the deep upon you and great waters cover you, then I will bring you down with those who descend into the pit, to the people of old, and I will make you dwell in the lowest parts of the earth, in places desolate from antiquity, with those who go down to the pit, so that you may never be inhabited, and I shall establish glory in the land of the living." I will make you a terror, and you shall be no more. Though you are sought for, you will never be found again, says the Lord God. Not long after the prophecy given by Ezekiel, Nebuchadnezzar did exactly what had been prophesied. He laid siege against the city in 585 B.C. It lasted for 13 years, from 586 to 573. Tyre could hold out because her navy 
brought in supplies that otherwise would have been depleted. But in the meantime, the people are fleeing the ship to an island of Tyre about a half a mile away. When Babylon declined in power and Nebuchadnezzar left after the 13 years, most of the inhabitants were now on the island of Tyre, a half mile away. So she, she regained her, her, her independence once again. So this new city offshore continued to flourish for another 250 years. So the prophecy of Ezekiel 26, 12, where it says, They shall lay the stones and thy timber and thy dust in the midst of the water remained unfulfilled. It looks like God is messed up, or Ezekiel has heard wrong, or whatever. But then, 250 years later, in 332 B.C., Alexander the Great, age 22, came to Tyre. He saw the ruins of the city, but the inhabited new city was on the island out of his reach. He sent his ambassadors to get him entrance to the new city, but the Tyrians killed them and threw them over the walls of the sea. Alexander was infuriated. So he built a causeway to the city. He took the building material of old tile, of old tire, the stones, the pillars, even the dust of the city. And in seven months, he built a causeway over which his army marched right into the new city of Tyre. He destroyed the city, and from that day to this, it has never been rebuilt. There is a city of Tyre. It is not built on that spot. There's a little fishing village there. And, but there is a Tyre city down the way, because Jesus went to Tyre and preached in Tyre. There was a church in Tyre. So, prophecy fulfilled. King Nebuchadnezzar did, in fact, destroy the mainland city. Fulfilled, many nations would rise up against Tyre, and these nations would come like waves of the sea, one after another. And this is what, the way that it happened. Alexander the Great, uh, he had built the, the mole, the causeway, and uh, they did, he did not have naval, uh, he did not have ships. And so he sent word out, and he had other ships from other nations nearby. They came. So they came in waves. And so this prophecy was fulfilled. Then that Tyre would be made like a flat rock. Alexander used the rubble to build his causeway, and Tyre became like a flat rock. And fishermen would dry their nets there. And today, in the area of old Tyre, fishermen dry their nets on the rocks. That the rubble of the city would be cast into the sea. And that happened. The rubble of the city was cast into the sea to build the causeway. Matter of fact, that causeway has grown larger. They, I think they even actually now have buildings on it because of just the sediment and the, I don't know how that all works where the water comes in and sand and whatever. That Tyre would never be rebuilt. Tyre would never be rebuilt to its former state. Today, 
and there I repeat myself, only a small fishing village exists on this site, and sailors use the rocks to dry their nets. The modern tire, tire is built some distance from the original site. Jerusalem has been rebuilt many times, but Tyre will never be rebuilt because a prophet in Babylon 25 centuries ago said you shall never be rebuilt. So that whole area, and part of that is, is sunk down, and there's, uh, part of it's ruins, but there's no, on that, that spot where Tyre was, and it's no longer there. Ezekiel 27, I never even thought I'd get this far, but I got way over. I really prepared. <laughs> the lamentation for Tyre. Verse 1, the word of the Lord came again to me, saying, Now, son of man, take up a lamentation for Tyre, and say to Tyre, You who are situated at the entrance of the sea, merchant of the people many, on many coastlands, thus says the Lord God, O Tyre, you have said, I am perfect in beauty. What brought Tyre down? Pride in the glory, pomp, and prosperity is the thing that brought down many great nations of the world and reduced them to ruins. This chapter speaks of how extensive that the kingdom of Phoenicia was. It begins with Shittim, which is Cyprus. Remember, Anthony's very famous, famous um, sermon that he preached. He who never a curse word has ever come out or a nasty word has ever come out of his mouth. And he says, what, uh, different day, same Shittim. <laughs> yeah, same Shittim, different day, which was, it got a big laugh. We laughed about it. But it, it, that's scriptural, okay? <laughs> uh, Okay, so it begins with Shittim Cyprus, meaning copper, which was one of their colonies, and extends all the way to Tarshish, which means the smelting plant or refinery. And these ships may have even been so, they were, they were well, so well made and so strong. And they, they um, I, don't, I don't know if, oh, I got, yeah, I do have a little description of that. Um, your borders are in the midst of the sea. Your builders have perfected your beauty. Ezekiel described Tyre as a large, beautiful merchant ship. He describes the whole town, the whole city like that. He used this figure to portray Tyre's pride and her prominence and dominance as a maritime power. The earliest Phoenician ships each had 50 oarsmen and were quite fast. The, la the later commercial ships were much longer and had a crew of up to 200 with two or three banks of oars on each side. The limits of this ship of state were those of the sea itself, and its builders had made it into a magnificent enterprise. The materials that had gone into its construction had been of the finest quality. And uh, I don't know if I put it in here or not. Those ships may have come, got, uh, sailed as far as uh, Cornwall, England. They were they were all over. They they went to get they were they were trading in tin. Uh, they were magnificent sailors and shipbuilders, the Phoenicians. Verse 5, they made all their planks of fir trees from sinner. They took a cedar from Lebanon to make you a mast. Of oaks from Bashan, they made your oars. The company of Asherites have inlaid your planks with ivory from the coasts of Cyprus. Fine embroidered linen from Egypt was what you spread for your sail 
Blue and purple from the coast of Elisha was what covered you. The wood was fir, probably pine or cypress from the Mount Hermon region, and the mast was a strong cedar from Lebanon. Likewise, her oars were of the best strong oak from Bashan, and her decks of boxwood or cypress from Cyprus contained beautifully inlaid ivory. Her linen sail had come from Egypt, which was famous for its linen products, and it had become Tyre's distinguishing flag or banner. The awning over the deck, or possibly the deck itself, was an attractive combination of violet and purple colors, and it came from Elisha, which is either Italy, Sicily, Carthage, Cyprus, and Syria, all being possibilities. In other words, Tyre's development as a city-state came through obtaining the finest materials of her day by trading with the producers of those materials. Verse 8, inhabitants of Sidon and Arvad were your oarsmen. Your wise men, O Tyre, were in you. They became your pilots. Elders of Gebel, or Jebel and its wise men were in your caulk, your were in you to caulk your seams. All the ships of the sea and their oarsmen were in you to market your merchandise. Now remember, it's just, they're speaking of the city as a ship. <clears throat> I need some sticky glue to turn pages here. Strong men from Sidon and Arvad or other neighboring Phoenician towns were this ship's rowers and its pilots were wise men. The Phoenicians were peerless in their seamanship in antiquity. The repairmen on board were also wise men from the famous elders of uh, Gebel, which is Beblos in Lebanon. All other trading peoples cooperated with Tyre because it was the leading merchant marine power of its day. The, destruction of every lavish, the description of every lavish detail of the trading vessel that represents the city of Tyre is expressed as an elaboration of Tyre's opinion of her own matchlessness. I am perfect in beauty. Those from Persia, Persia, Lydia, and Libya were in your army as men of war. They hung shield and helmet in you. They gave splendor to you. Persia ultimately defeated the Babylonians in 539 B.C. Lydia on the west coast of Asia Minor is sometimes translated Lud. I don't know how I, whether this is pronounced Put, I think it is P-H-U-T, maybe Cyrene in northern Africa, or Punt or Somalia. That's Ezekiel 38.5. We're going to go ahead and get into that. Both Lydia and Put supplied mercenary soldiers for the Egyptian army. And that's recorded in Jeremiah 46, 8, 9. And Persia, the name does not meet us in any Old Testament books before the exile. And we know that Elam taking its place. So when we get into the, the prophecies, you're going to see that a place called Elam, which is Persia, looks like they're going to be destroyed nuclearly. And Elam in uh, Iran, Persia, that is where they store their nuclear facilities. It's old, uh, the old part of Persia, and it is Elam. It was just about the time that Ezekiel wrote that the Persians were becoming conspicuous through their alliance with the Medes. Here they are named as mercenaries in the Tyrian army. 
Verse 11, men of Arvad with your army were on your walls all around, and the men of Gamad were in your towers. They hung their shields on your walls all around. They made your beauty perfect. Likewise, the men of Arvad and, Gamad, and Gamadim, men of Gamad, places unknown, we're not sure about that, were part of her fighting force. They hung their shields on Tyre's walls, identifying themselves with her and pledging to defend her. Some translators believed Halek was the name of a place, namely a region in southeast Anatolia, the later Roman province of Cilicia, where the Apostle Paul grew up. Verse 12, Tarshish was your merchant because of your many luxury goods. They gave you silver, iron, tin, and lead for your goods. So these ships were going everywhere, and they, were, they, they literally were dealing with every kind of merchandise. This was a world wide commercial business. Um, Britannia was from a word meaning tin, and the Phoenicians brought tin from Cornwall, and Jonah bought a ticket to that city, but he never saw it. Instead, he saw the interior of the big fish. The ships of Tarshish were the larger merchant vessels that were made for distant ocean-going traffic. Um, I have down here two, 1 Kings 22:48 and Isaiah 2:16, and I have written in here, and I don't know why that I did this. Worldwide trade at Stone, Stonehenge made over a period 300 years. So I, I don't know. I'm just going to throw that out there if you want to research that. Javan, Tubal, and Meshach were your traders. They bartered human lives and vessels of bronze for, for your merchandise. So they were into uh, slave trading. Javan, okay, they used slaves and bronze for merchandise. Okay, th- those from the house of Togarmar traded for your wares with horses, steeds, and mules. Look how worldwide this is. This is like our world. I mean, it is just amazing. Horses, steeds, and mules. The people of Beth, Togomar, eastern Turkey, and Armenia gave mules and horses, including war horses, for Tyre's wares. The Dedanites, who lived in Arabia along the Persian Gulf, or the Gulf of Aqaba, also traded with Tyre and paid for their merchandise with ivory tusks and ebony. The men of Dedan were your traders. Many isles were the mar- market of your hand. They brought you ivory tusks and ebony as payment. Just a vast, um, it's, it is, when we get into this, we'll see the, that it is, uh, it's Babylon. It's the world commercial system. Um, let's see, verse 16. Syria was your merchant because of the abundance of goods you made. The, they gave you for your wares emeralds, purple, embroidery, fine linen, corals, and rubies. Judah and the land of Israel were your traders, and they traded for your merchandise wheat of Mineth, millet, honey, oil, and balm. Syria was one of Tyre's customers and provided her with emeralds, pearl, embroidered goods, fine linen, coral, and rubies in exchange for its purchases, and Judah uh, also traded with Tyre and exchanged, uh, I just repeated that. Uh, Damascus was your merchant because of the abundance of goods you made. 
because of your many luxury items with the wine of Helbun and with white wool. Dan and Javen paid for your wares, tra traversing back and forth. Wrought iron, cassia, and cane were among your merchandise. Um, Damascus also found Tyre an attractive trading partner because of her extensive inventory of various products. And there I'm going to repeat this. She paid for her purchases with wine and white wool. Um, Dan became a seagoing tribe in the Danites, and Javan paid for their wares with yarn, wrought iron, cassia, and sweet cane. Okay, verse 20. Dedan was your merchant in saddlecloths for riding. Arabia and all the princes of Kedar were your regular merchants, and they traded with you in lambs, rams, and goats. The merchants of Sheba and Ramah were your merchants. They traded for your wares with the, the wares, the choicest spices, all kinds of precious stones and gold. Now, this one I'll go into a little bit. Sheba was in southwest Arabia, almost 1,200 miles from Jerusalem. It was famous for gold, frankincense, and precious stones. Ramah probably was on the Persian Gulf, and there was a contrived lineage to Menelik, which was supposed to be the son of the Queen of Sheba and Solomon, with an attempt to link the early kings of Ethiopia with Solomon, thus the Ark legend. I repeat, the Ark legend. Verse 23, Haran, Cana, Eden, the merchants of Sheba, Assyria, and Chilmad were your merchants. These were your merchants in choice items, in purple clothes, in embroidered garments, in chests of multicolored apparel, in sturdy woven cords, which were in your marketplace. The ships of Tarshish were carriers of your merchandise. You were filled and very glorious in the midst of the sea. There is just simply nothing that, they, that see, it's a, it's, it, it is the world commercial trading. What, is, what can you think of that we have now that they were not trading in? It's, 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 it's it. it. This is us. Your oarsmen brought you into many waters, but the east wind broke you in the midst of the seas. Your riches, wares, and merchandise, your mariners and pilots, your caulkers and merchandisers, all your men of war who are in you, and the entire company which is in your midst will fall into the midst of the seas on the days of your ruin. The whole world commercial system will go down. It will go down. You cannot put, uh, hang your life or your lifestyle, anything on the goods of this earth. You hold everything loosely in your hands. Because this is just, this is a picture, and we're, well, we're going to tie it in later, a little later on. So Tyre's merchants had brought her ship into great waters, but there it encountered a strong end wind that broke it, namely Babylon. All who contributed to the success of Tyre's enterprise would fall into the chaotic sea when God overthrew this ship of state. Any ship can be sunk by the master of the sea. The common land will shake at the sound of the cry of your pilots. All who handle the oar, the mariners, all the pilots of the sea will come down from their ships and stand on the shore, and they will make their voice heard because of you. They will cry bitterly. 
and cast dust on their heads. They will roll about in ashes. They will shave themselves completely bald because of you, gird themselves with sackcloth and weep for you with bitterness of heart and bitter wailing. The cry of the Tyrians when destruction came would cause all her merchants, her trading partners, and onlookers to bewail and mourn. Verse 32, in their wailing for you, they will take up a lamentation and lament for you. What city is like Tyre? Destroyed in the midst of the sea. When your wares went out by sea, you satisfied many people. You enriched the kings of the earth with your many luxury goods and your merchandise, but you are broken by the sea in the depths of the waters. Your merchandise and the entire company will fall in your midst. They would lament the demise of this great commercial empire, regarding it as the mightiest power of its kind on the earth. Thus we have a lamentation within a lamentation Tyre had satisfied the materialistic desires of many nations and kings. These onlookers would wail because Tyre's ship had sunk. All the inhabitants of the isles will be astonished at you. Their kings will be greatly afraid and their countenance will be troubled. The merchants among the peoples will hiss at you. You will become a horror and be no more forever. Tyre's trading partners would stand appalled at her, and we're going to see this again as we get over, and we'll see it in Revelation, too. We'll tie it in. Tyre's trading partners would stand appalled at her, and their kings would fear for the prosperity of their own kingdoms. Other merchants would whistle in amazement at her unbelievable collapse. Tyre herself would quake with terror and would pass into oblivion. The record of Tyre has a peculiar relevance for our day, for our areas in which she excelled and was the envy of the entire ancient world are precisely the fields in which every modern nation seeks superiority. But Tyre has a message for our age, and it is that riches without God are unable to satisfy the heart of man and often keeps many from dependence upon God. And that is the truth. People cry out when they're in need. And when they get prosperous and fat, they just don't, they don't cry out anymore. They don't need him, they think. So I'm going to stop here because I've only got five minutes. But now next one, we're going to talk about the, the proclamation against the king of Tyre. And he is the one the power behind the throne. And so we're going to see what motivates people to be so greedy. What motivates people to think I'm all that? What motivates people to judge one another? And we're going to see, we're going to see the revelation of Satan and how he, um, how he is involved in this. I know this was a little heavy, a little... Uh, but this is where we'll, <laughs> it just gets worse as you go on. <laughs> no, no, it's going to be fine. But the one thing we can come out of this, we know, God loves us. And you can see how long that he, uh, how long that he just held himself at bay. 
but God's wanting you to see, I'm not happy with this. God is saying, I'm not happy with this materialism. This is how I feel about it. And with one word from my mouth, I could take it all down. And so we, he's, he's wanting us to see that, to get that Old Testament perspective as well as the new. And there again, I remind you, we all have the dregs, but praise God, Jesus took that cup for us all the way. And he didn't beg. We should be forever grateful to him.